Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for Podcast. like it's been a long time coming 1980 and that's weird because it happened you know over 30 years ago at this point wouldn't you agree Ian? Well I would agree I have a certain sense of deja vu about all this but yes I, I would agree we have taken our sweet goddamn time to get to 980 but now we're here we're here and we're ready. Yes it's it's just show 14 and the show called Revenge of the 80s Kids has finally got to the 1980s. So, uh, well done us, you know. Um, and, and to be fair, it's, it's a cracking year to start off with. I mean, we've got some, some groundbreaking movies going off in, uh, in 1980. We've got, you know, Airplane. Of course, uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980, but there's also things like, you know, The Shining, uh, and, uh, there's some interesting little science fiction y things like The Final Countdown, uh, so, yeah. some, some hard boiled action like The Exterminator, um, and of course, who could forget? Hawk the Slayer. Wait, Leo, no, don't say it. No, my God, why'd you say it? You know he comes when you say it. <laughs> oh, oh, it is oh I. <laughs> Did someone yes. mention the magic words? <laughs> yes. It is not. It is. The home it audience is, it, should know that we are not just yes. two 80s kids no. today. We have now, by invoking Hawk the Slayer, brought a third <laughs> into the fold. It is yes, just the third the, of these kids. My, yes. hand, my hand burst forth from Gravesend, crawling out. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, and I am Ian, and I am another one of the 80s kids. There is no summoning words for me, however. No, no, no summoning words for me, Leo, the last of the 80s kids, but uh, at least now that we can do a thing, you know, where when shall we three meet again and, and all of that, yeah, well, same time next. I think now, one, whenever we have Justin in, we have to have the Hawk the Slayer gag happen before he can appear. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm, and you can try ways to work it into the conversation. Well, at least the film wasn't as bad as Hawk the Slayer. <laughs> Who summons me? Yes, well, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, you know, it, 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 that that's all very well, but Hawk the Slayer really was only released in 1980, so, you know, other years it might be a bit of a shoehorn, but hey. Um, so, yes, so Justin's joining us. Uh, maybe, I mean, now it seems uh, inappropriate not to start with it. Why Why have we made this big joke about uh, Justin coming in at Hawk the Slayer? Justin, explain your relationship for the um, folks at home between you well, and Hawk the Slayer. You know, some people may hate Hawk the Slayer uh, and laugh at his laughable budgets, etc. Um, Hawk the Slayer was kind of quite quite important in my formative years. I mean, it was uh, it's kind of the closest thing to what I was doing at the time, you know, like role playing. Um, we used to watch it Dunstein's around my mates, um, and it's got a very you know it's, it holds a very special place in my heart. I see, and uh, I mean because I, I right my relationship to Hawk the Slayer is that. While I was preparing for this show, uh, the Horror Channel 
decided to show it, so I put it on the DVR, and then I watched it at... at oh, it's kind of horrifying, made, you know. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was a very new thing to me, uh, you know, and, and at the same time a very old thing. Uh, I was quite surprised, because the one thing I always knew about Hawk the Slayer was that it had Jack Palance in it. And I was like, so I was. It's where the money went. Well, yes, but I was kind of expecting, therefore, knowing who Jack Palance was, that it was going to be one of these American fantasy movies, a la, you know, The Beastmaster. And then it was, and then it kind of segued during the. I was, you know, the the opening credits came out, and there was all that disco, and I was like, oh, maybe it's Italian. Um, And then it had every British actor ever in 1980. In it, I was like, "Oh, it's British." <laughs> so, <laughs> in my in my mind, it kind of kaleidoscopically went through a variety of nationalities. Well, uh, right. no, 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 I think it was, it was a case of Americans like Jack Palance. Well, put Jack Palance in our in our cheap, low budget uh, fantasy movie filmed in the New Forest. Well, what's really weird about it is that when you say filmed in the New Forest. Um, one of the things that I noted was that uh, they had they had like one interior set which was uh, meant to be sort of a, a nunnery or something, um, and then the rest of the time they didn't have enough money to build like entire villages or you know they didn't have a town or they didn't have any of that sort of stuff. Well, they so had they had apparently an abundance of silly string. <laughs> yes, they spent all their money on Jack and, and dry ice machines. I was just and thinking, what more do you need, really, in terms of epic fantasy? <laughs> just thinking, yeah. Just thinking. This recent stuff with all CGI, we could get all about that. Let's get back to the heart of it all, really. Jack Palant, Silly String, and. and uh, well, exactly. Oh, that's, that's a hell of a receipt. It's like, what's on the receipt? Um, yes. Uh, wooden cart, Silly String, Jack Palant. That was a night out. <laughs> Uh, seeing as our discussion of Hawk the Slayer is pretty much well underway, we might as well proceed to the end of it now. I think um, to the uh, Jack Plants, it, it always struck me as kind of a kind of Star Wars bandwagony kind of thing in that fantasy was it's, cheaper to do than, than science fiction. It's funny you should say that because now I'm sat in front of my computer. I've just brought up the uh, the, the cover of it, and I'm struck by the blatant plagiarism of Star Wars. Because there's the, there's the dude. He's got he's looking remarkably like a fantasy version of Han Solo with his white shirt and black. Oh white yes. Shirt. And uh, he's holding aloft his sword with this kind of glowy effect. So you know it's it's a and there's this kind of shadowy masked figure behind. So yes, I have to agree. Uh, and the, I seem to recall uh, his Jack Palance's helmet was kind of a bit Darth Vader-y. It does look like it's yes. Now that I'm fresh. I think, I think though that does demonstrate the. Um, underlying sort of Britishness of it, because if you'd gone to an American... What American movie studios did to rip off Star Wars was make a lot of space opera. They were like, oh yeah, it's in space with stars and spaceships and, you know, stuff like that. Only the British sensibility would go, well, essentially, you see, Star Wars is really a high fantasy. It just happens to have been translated into the visual idiom of a space <laughs> opera. You say that, but most of Star Wars is shot in a desert, isn't it? Well, yeah, but they've got glowy... But they do have, you know, glowy swords and space dogfights. So it, those things are... Uh, to Americans, that's what's important. Whereas I can understand why British people... Would would kind of go ah well if we undermine take the classic you know mythical 
underpinning of it and translate it, then that'll be a big hit at the cinema. Um, that didn't really work, but you know, yeah, yes. good well. full full marks for uh, unraveling the visual metaphor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we've got castles and we've got forests. Get Jack Plans on the phone. Is he free? Um, what's interesting about it though is that in a way, um, because. Uh, you wouldn't see Conan for a little while at this stage. Um, and, and, you know, this whole sort of... I mean, I always think of sword and sandal movies as being an old sort of movie, but really, they're not. I mean, that kind of conan type, high fantasy type thing, it really didn't exist before... The late seventies, early eighties. No, really. it, it was a, a, it was a kind of a, a glut of that kind of stuff uh, in the mid eighties, early eighties, which obviously you're probably going to be delving into. In Conan rams down the door. It's, it's the floodgates open for any number of ripoffs. Even though I don't think Conan made like, make a huge amount of money, did it? it wasn't like a runaway success. Oops. No, but I mean, oh, what's really odd to me is because prior to uh, Hawk the Slayer. Conan the Barbarian, the Beastmaster, Red Sonja, and all of these which were in a sort of alternative fantasy universe. You had things like Jason and the Argonauts, Seven Voyages of Sinbad, and, you know, things like that, where it was this word, but in the past. Um, Well, you've got the resurgence of... uh, You've got kind of Dungeons and Dragons, haven't you, in the late 70s, that, that kind of resurgence of fantasy, really. Whereas up to that point, it obviously would have been far more kind of classical where you're drawing your storylines from. I think at the end, somebody somewhere worked out, hey, you know what? If you if you set these sort of uh, mythical fantasies in alternative universes, people can't moan about anachronisms. Because... No, well, I think also people are like, Lord of the Rings is too long and too expensive to get the rights. Let's just make up our own movie. Well, of course. I mean, yes, the whole that 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 whole alternative world fantasy adventure setting was only invented in the 1940s by by uh, J.R. Tolkien. So I suppose it's not really a surprise that it took a long time for people to work out, you know, to make movies out of it. But it's never really had. At this point, we would even say it's a genre that hasn't even really had its time. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. I think it kind of took the idea of the kind of bodybuilding actors to come in. That kind of this, these kind of larger than life figures, I think, helped Schwarzeneggers and these kind of types. That suddenly, you know, um, the actors would well, in the eighties you know, became these big, kind of crazy figures, rather than just you know actors. Well, you know, it, Arnold Schwarzenegger does look mythic. He looks yeah. biblical. He could be Samson, couldn't he? You know. Yeah. I mean, there was kind of you had a bit of that in the past with some of the kind of, the kind of Tarzan and the kind of, that, that kind of thing, but uh, I think it kind of came to head, really, in the 80s. Yeah, and the interesting thing for me is that um, one of the things that you, you kind of think, and the first time I looked through this list, um, I sort of thought, it's almost like, I mean, not that you're supposed to know, I mean, you can know you're in 1980, but, you know, oh, we've got to change the way everything's done, we've got to go 80s with these films. And the first time I looked at this list, I thought, hmm, it's not really a very 80s list of movies. But then, I mean, it, the two big movies are definitely hangovers out of the 70s. The two big movies of the year, of course, being The Empire Strikes Back and Superman 2. Um, but actually, when I look through, you can see a lot of seeds of things that, that are going to go off in the 80s uh, in the films that were released that year. I mean, another film 
that probably is a good sideways way and a way into all of the, the bigger movies and away from Hawk the Slayer is uh, Flash Gordon. Yeah. Came out in 1980, which was uh, definitely more of an American take on how to rip off Star Wars or do something with that Star Wars <coughs> ethic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it, does have, it does have the, the certain irony that Lucas wanted to make Flash Gordon but couldn't. And now we have Flash Gordon trying to hop on this kind of Star Wars bandwagon. But to its credit, it kind of does it in, in its own own way. And purely as a bit of 80s nostalgia. Oh, I've been disconnected. No, you haven't. Someone's... Still here. We're just ignoring you. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. Someone else is trying to Skype me. For goodness sake, how many people are going to be in this podcast? Um, no, I was, I was going to say... Um, one of the kind of the tree people, I forget what they're called. Uh, you've got, you know, future James Bond is, is, is leader of the tree people. And, uh, the tree, well, the tree person who passes that, that bizarre random test, which yeah. you stick your hand in a hole and get killed. The yeah. fact that that guy went on to become a blue Peter presenter. Yes, that's right. Peter Duncan. <laughs> Peter Duncan. That has weirded me out for years. Like, Peter Duncan dies in Flash Gordon. It's like it's a sort of children's magazine TV presenter who's on who's part of my like, world after school for years, and there he is, dying horribly for being stung by a scorpion in what is the most ridiculous rites of passage that any culture could develop. You might as well play Russian roulette. Well, yes. Well, I, I think they just need an excuse to stick their hand in tree holes. That's just, <laughs> that's just what they liked. I think I think uh, common sense was not high on the agenda. Of uh, you know, dynamics when it comes to Brian Blessed. I mean, how were those wings ever supposed to make it look like they were flying? <laughs> um, guess, but this is it's the charm, isn't it, of it really? It's the kind of cheapness, uh, and cheapness that I think strength. I think it's quite interesting though that when you say cheapness, it was actually quite an expensive movie by all accounts. Probably, yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, it's 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 aping you know the kind of sort. Of, the, the actual original series, which obviously does appear to be cheap. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, it, in comparison, it had a lot more money thrown into it. But, I mean, it, it put it this way, it hasn't, it hasn't stood the test of time so much as, as you know, the Star Wars fr- franchise. Well, it, it's there is, it is a lot more ludicrous about it. I mean, it, it, spoiler coming up, you know, Ming is killed at the end because Flash Gordon hijacks his capital ship, rams it into this tower, and by coincidence just happens to skewer him with the nose cone of the vessel. <laughs> Can you imagine that happening in Star Wars? The Millennium Falcon rams into the Death Star, the Emperor gets skewered on the end of one of the Millennium I'm, Falcon's prongs. People I'm, I'm, be outraged by it. I'm just imagining, you know, George Old Binks dying in that way. That's pleasing me. Well, that would be acceptable. Uh, any way out for that character, I think, would be fine. Hey, we're skipping quite a long way ahead with that one. Oh. But, yeah, I mean, the Flash Gordon thing, I think that that's an example. Uh, not, not the only example, uh, I might add, of where I think the production team of Flash Gordon, under the direction of Mike Hodges, didn't really get that... Um, People sort of Star Wars is, has a little bit of silliness to it, but it also has a lot of stuff in it which is like that people took more seriously. Whereas I think that Mike Hodges only saw the silly stuff in Star Wars. Well, if we turn that up to eleven, surely yeah. people will go nuts for it. Well, <laughs> you have the John Williams score versus the Queen score. I mean, that kind of that's kind of where it deviates, doesn't it? Really, that kind of it's like a but fault it line. Is, it is a very the film is a very faithful adaptation mm. you know, of the original series. I mean, it is, 
you know, exactly that kind of space pulp. It looks silly because because space pulp is silly. It, you know, it's not the serious kind of hard science fiction. It is full of, you know, um, space princesses and flying men. And it, it is just it doesn't have kind of that veneer of cool that you can put on kind of super sophisticated science fiction. So so I applaud them for, you know, going at it completely. You know, they to- totally representing the original. Um, it, but obviously because yeah. of that, it dates just like the original series dates. You know, it's, it's... Although, in a curious way, bearing in mind the fact that obviously it's 1980 pretending to be like 1940, it doesn't date. Because people at the time, I think, reacted to Flash Gordon more or less in the way that anyone who sees it today would. They'd be like, really? Is this what we're doing today? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, well, okay, I, personally, I think it dates. I mean, you've got a Queen soundtrack, you know, you've got kind of a ridiculous kind of hammy kind of effects and things. I don't know. Ming the Merciless's grand plot is he wants to do Dale, really. That's basically his motivation. I just want to um, I just want to come back to the fact that Highlander has a Queen soundtrack and that works fine. Do you know what I mean? It's like Queen... I mean, I think that what happened there was that Queen... I don't think the Queen soundtrack was bad. I think the Queen soundtrack to Flash Gordon is bloody excellent and highly it memorable. It is. Yes. And I think that anything that you think about it that is silly or campy or overblown is like a result of them seeing the rushes or, you know, looking at the script or coming to set one day and having a look about and going, right, so if this is the film they're making, we're going to have to do this. And so, you know, it's a reaction to the film. It's not, you know, they don't add, they just make it even more Flash Gordon. Yeah. In that case, I'm going to have to go away now and recut the end medal scene for Star Wars. Instead of putting on Queens, he saved every one of us instead. (laughs) Luke's getting giving his medal. (laughs) But, um, yeah, like I say, I mean, I'm not sure. um, Right, okay. So I think what we can come to the conclusion is that that, uh, the makers of Flash Gordon got Flash Gordon and didn't really get Star Wars. Um, And and keeping on theme of... Directors that didn't exactly get what it was they were supposed to be trying to do. Uh, moving on to The Shining, which came out in 1980, which um, some people, well, a lot of people, very much like The Shining. It's become a very iconic movie. Uh, the only person who, who isn't really that keen on it, or famously isn't that keen on it, is Stephen King, the original author of the book. Uh, he feels that it is not a true representation of what he was trying to do with his novel. Well, yes. At the same time, though, to defend filmmakers, you, it's you can't when you adapt a book. It, it it really isn't an adaptation. You kind of have to take you know you have to go, kind of go your own direction with it sometimes. Um, uh, I, I mean, it was in the hands of a visionary filmmaker, and it is that's it really. I mean, I think you know you could in terms of you know adaptions away from the source material. I mean, it's coming much later. But, you know, I mean, you could be equally offended on that ground by something like Lawnmower Man. And the difference between that is that's not made by a video director. It's just, you know, a terrible adaption of a, of a Stephen King film. I mean, Hitch- so, Hitchcock was kind of like this as well. Hitchcock just kind of got the gist, uh, gist of a novel. You know, the, the thing he, he got hold of and he kind of ran with that. And that was his approach to how you, how you do it. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think that directors or writers should be beholden to the original author's vision necessarily i mean it's well, great when they can come together beautifully well i do think that the one right the, the one thing that i would 
agree that I've, I've always scratched my head about is that Kubrick sort of uh, presumably got the script. The script was already in existence of The Shining, and he read it, and he thought, I could do something with this. And yet, one of the reasons that Stephen King got so frustrated was because um, Kubrick was very uh, much... He didn't. He not only did he not believe in ghosts, he didn't really understand what a ghost was or how anyone. You know, it. It, it was like he said. It was like having a conversation. Dead people? No, you can't. I mean, dead people are dead. You can't. They don't leave anything behind. Blah blah. And that's why it became this thing of Jack Nicholson, uh, Jack Torrance going, it became, going mad. Yeah, going mad, and, and then it's all about insanity because he really couldn't deal with. At, at the same time, though, I mean, it, it's you can try and read it as just Jack goes mad. At the same time, who lets him out the freezer because well, he's locked in at one stage, so, and it's, it's it's presented as if the barn lets him go pursue his family again. I think it's generally a creepy film. I think that yes. there's a lot of stuff in it that you don't really understand. Uh, and I think that just adds to that kind of paranoia, you know. Um, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's kind of my favourite approach to stories because I think ghosts are very, well, I don't believe ghosts myself, but I, I always feel they're best presented when they're, when they're passive-aggressive in a funny sort of way. They're, they're kind of abstract. Uh, it's almost like they're coming at us at a sideways angle in some sort of almost overlapping dimension, if you know what I mean. So I'm fine with it. Like it's present them as a collection of really horrid, disturbed images and memories. Uh, seems like a really good way to do a ghost story because the main thing people get from haunted houses is they feel a bit creeped out by them. In, in a certain way, I think that possibly at the time, The Shining got a little bit of a you know a, a bit of a raw deal because it does sort of exemplify and indulge in some of the worst habits of. 70s horror that um i mean and uh, you know this is not me saying anything against 70s horror i'm actually a big fan of you know I'm, i miss the fact that um we used to have uh movies about you know like the omen and the exorcist and and movies where you know they weren't ashamed to have bits about you know religion or bits about and in a horror movie i mean these days your religion horror movie is basically about possession but in 1980 it was all about well i mean we've got the movie here in the list is friday the 13th that was you know an iconic this is yeah. what's going to set the tone for 80s horror is 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 that kind of slasher movie i mean we'd already had a couple in the 70s but this was really where the floodgates yeah. started to open so yes, so I, I mean, so I think that The Shining got a sort of bad deal because people were like, "Oh, we're bored of this now, and we want to watch people get hacked apart by slashes." And Friday the Thirteenth was there to. to it's it's, it's really strange that Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, maybe not so much the first Friday the Thirteenth, but the general Friday the Thirteenth sort of franchise is just kind of viewed as as delicious, violent death horror movie, and The Shining. I've Every single time I've kind of come across it, it's always been presented in a way of like, filmmaker students, please examine this morsel. My goodness, the richness of it. We could analyze this forever. Blade Runner is a bit like that as, as well for me. Um, it, it's it's like it's almost held up as as like this is this is art and it needs to be really studied and like we have to take into every minor detail in this needs to be studied because chances are Kubrick might have done it intentionally. Um, 
and I, and it's it's kind of a a, a reverence uh, that you don't really get with many other films. Yes, whereas I mean to move on, I mean what you're saying about Friday the Thirteenth and how you don't really, I mean yeah, I to be fair, to put my cards on the table, uh, I don't think I've ever seen a, a slasher movie that I particularly enjoy. Um, really, um, it's not a genre I I like. Um, I mean you know you get that kind of slasher movie where it's like Scooby Doo. And it's like, who, who is the killer? Uh, which became incredibly much more the, the sort of the way to do it after Scream. But then, uh, just this, I mean, you know, whatever. It's just kind of incredibly formulaic, aren't they? That's the problem. That you really, very rarely would get surprised by watching something like that. I, I, I generally prefer it the other way around. Where it's not a killer bumming off to just a bunch of kids or a bunch of normal people. I prefer it when it's, when it's someone trying to avenge themselves on a very nasty group of human beings. Um, I've, I've never really been able to enjoy the sort of Final Destination movies because I've never been able to really delight in the deaths because they're just kind of normal people, normal people who are being picked on yeah. by death. You think yes. of all the entities in the universe, it would be a bit more chilled out about people surviving because, you know, it'll get them in the end anyway. What's the yeah. rush? Yes. Um, uh, so, you know, if there's a Friday the 13th about a bunch, which was like a period piece about a bunch of Nazis getting picked off, I'd probably be interested in watching that one, but... Not so much. I guess they're just yes. I mean, they are just delighting in 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 innocent people being butchered, which is a kind of a strange, you know, it's kind of an uncomfortable place to be. I do well now. I, the thing about it is that I I do think I mean because I've heard some rather more avid slasher movie fans come back and say you know you get th- there are the tropes of the slasher movie are things like the final girl that it's usually a girl that survives through to the end and so on and so forth and that um essentially i don't think people are supposed to really delight in people getting butchered it's just the fact that people are that is what is appealing to people but that's the thing it's like i'm i think what it is is that i'm really big into story and they don't have a plot really it's just everybody gets killed and then there's the end. I, I think, uh, yeah, but I mean, also the other thing that happened was, which is kind of really the eighties, was that you, you know, the idea of the villain being the hero, as it were, was coming into the forefront. So people were actually, you know, go, they want to see a Friday the Thirteenth film because of Jason Voorhees. You know, they're not interested in anyone else. They're all kind of throwaway characters. That's why they're all one-dimensional. Yes. So, or Freddy, or all these kind of things. That becomes you know, the point of it all. You don't now, want those characters to die. They must come back. So they have to be supernatural or, you know, very, very tough in I some am, capacity. Yeah, I am sensitive to the uh, need not to spoil uh, 33-year-old movies here, but you do know who the killer is in Friday the 13th. Uh, yes, in the original one, yes. It's his mother. Yes. It's not, it's it's not his mother. It's, a, it's an actual straight slasher movie. Yeah. It's proper Scooby-Doo slasher movie yes. where it's like, who is the killer? Oh, it's his mother. So, yes, just thought I'd, I'd mention that. So Jason doesn't actually come into the Friday the 13th franchise <laughs> until number two, and at that point, he doesn't leave for another, what, 11 episodes or some bizarre yeah. number. And, and, and goes on to fight Freddy Krueger eventually as well. Yes, um, in a film that most people would rather forget. Um, although I do remember once seeing a, a miniature board game uh, which had a little Jason and a little Freddy 
and nice. you had to move them along a little but it, it was the Jason versus Freddy miniature board game in which one player played Jason and the other one played Freddy and <laughs> some stuff happened and eventually one of them won <laughs> It's pretty cool. As uh, long as it's not like Angel, the board game, I don't mind. Yes. <laughs> another conversation for another place. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, uh, at the time when that came out, I mean, I think the other thing about it is that a notable other film that, that was released in 1980 uh, was Cannibal Holocaust. And there were a lot of cannibal movies, none of which I have ever seen, but it's no. an Italian cannibal cannibal exploitation movies released in the early 80s. <laughs> cannibals like a, a, a right video nasty before the video nasties, wasn't it? Also, that's basically what it was. Um, well, it, well, this is about to tip off the video nasties. They hadn't that, that kind well, of whole That's thing. what I'm saying. It's kind of like it's video nasty before video nasties were actually a, a thing. A thing, yes. But, um, but yeah, the thing about it is that um, Italy had been doing these incredibly gory movies. And, of course... There was a there was form for it in America with uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis way back in the past and what have you, and I think when people were saying, "Oh, this is what people want," so Friday the Thirteenth was the attempt to sort of make an Italian sort of horror movie in an American environment, and the competition that Friday the Thirteenth had was things like The Shining, which was you know seen I think by many horror fans as a bit too arty to be a proper you know, horror movie. And then uh, on the horror front, we have uh, The Fog. Yeah. John Carpenter, who did the sort of the original slasher movie, uh, well, apart from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but the one that really set... Because the Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't set the mould, whereas Halloween does. Halloween is like, there's this guy, Michael Myers, and he comes and he slashes people, whereas the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a much more uh, psychedelic experience, shall we say. Yeah. Absolutely, and it's, so, it's it, yeah. Well, you've done the seventies, but the seventies is you know has a particular theme of horror and feel. So yeah, so John Carpenter comes out with the Fog, starring yeah. starring as its villain, ghost pirate ghosts, a, an idea in the end so ridiculous that. It's Scooby-Doo! <laughs> well, it is Scooby-Doo, and not only Scooby-Doo, but rip-off, uh, sort of... Um... Well, it's not Scooby-Doo, because they genuinely are ghost pirates. They turn out to be not to be ghost pirates, it'd be oh. Scooby-Doo. But I well, remember... some of the like, Scooby-Doo's team that, but yeah. yeah. I remember the Halloween episode of South Park featuring the voices of Corn, and Corn at that point were pretend in that episode of South Park, were pretending to be like the Scooby-Doo mystery gang, and they had ghost yeah. pirates in it. So it's an idea that kind of gets in your head to such a degree that people are like, what's the most ridiculous thing that could happen now? Yeah. Ghost pirates. So I think that's probably a, 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 a sort of a bad basis on which to say this will be the most terrifying thing you've seen, yeah. you know, all day. It's ghost pirates. No. You, you know, later on, Disney would quite make quite a lot of money out of a film featuring ghost pirates. But again, it wasn't a horror movie, was it? It was a family adventure movie. Yes, and I think, to be honest, that made the ghost pirates work, because they, they don't work as like, oh, you're supposed to be scared. But then if you're like a fighter, a sword fighter and stuff, and you can't kill the person you're sword fighting, and they're always going to win in the end, that gives you some dramatic, that gives them some dramatic tension. So, you know, I mean, there is an argument to say that possibly one of the most disturbing movies produced in 1980 doesn't come under any of the things that we've discussed so far. Um, the, the, it was, in fact, um, a particular misfire of the Disney studios in The Watcher in the Woods, 
the says here starring Bette Davis. Bette Davis had a sort of cameo side role in it. Uh, am I the only person here who's seen this movie? I, I have seen it a long time ago. I just remember being creeped out unbelievably by it. Um, I can't remember much about it, to be honest. Well, but it, certainly, um, a bit, yeah, it was it was a bit, uh, yeah, very creepy for a, for a young tender age I was watching it then. Well, Justin, you have Netflix, so you can enjoy the fact that it is on Netflix. So you can go and revisit, and then you can go, really, I was scared by this? I mean, you know, I can see why a child would be scared by The Watcher in the Woods. It does seem a very bizarre... Uh, it, it, it is a very bizarre movie uh, for Disney to have made. Um, yes, and as um, I got whispered in my ear, like I was on a television show there, there are, of course... <laughs> Um, three endings to The Watcher in the Woods. Uh, the novel on which the film is based was about some kids who, messing about with the occult, uh, managed to uh, summon some trans-dimensional being, and then you know all this crazy stuff goes off at the end, and it's it's really it really is quite disturbing. It's like the ultimate cautionary tale about why you shouldn't mess about with you know occult stuff. And yep. Disney kind of made that straight. And they showed it to test audiences and showed it to the studio. And they were like, really? This is what we're going to put out for children to watch? I don't think so. Go away, take all away all the occult. So they reshot it and they changed the occult bits into um, them doing something that isn't even really occult. It was like uh, they were singing Ring a Ring of Roses in an old church and that had accident. And they were like, that's not really any more comforting. Now what you're saying, don't even play because you no. might accidentally summon the Antichrist. When was the height of the uh, demonic role, uh, Dungeons & Dragons Well, this is about now, yes. About now. It was around... I mean, I'm sure that on one of our lists in the next couple of years, we're going to see, of course, Mazes and Monsters come out. Oh, yes. So, yes, I mean, this, it, the hysteria about... Well, I mean, t to be fair, you uh, we try and identify it as a point in time. This is when everybody... But honestly, there are still people who think that Dungeons mm. & Dragons is... Well, all no, it's, a, it's, it's always been an ongoing problem. Rock and roll was used to used to be the big monster. And these days, it's, it's violent video games, which are apparently brainwashing our children into being an army of, of psychopaths. And it's, it's hysteria. It yes. is. And, and people, some people still want Dungeons and Dragons to be evil. I don't know why. <laughs> it's, like, it's teaching our kids how to summon demons, and it's, well, it's, it's so yeah. funny when you actually know what Dungeons and Dragons is like, and how those sessions generally go down. <laughs> well, of course, I mean, you know, even Harry Potter wasn't safe from the uh, fickle finger of, of uh, you know, people <laughs> just saying, oh, that teaches people how to be demon worshippers so you know Harry Potter also got it it doesn't, it's not it, the slightest it'll be anything, it could it, be it anything it teaches them how to be more tolerant of, diff of different people of different races and cultures oh my god and that kind of thing is against the principles of certain religious people so well, actually you do have a fair point there I withdraw my uh, criticism <laughs> but uh, I mean to return to the watch in the woods so in the end what happened was that they they kept they lost the occult stuff. Then they lost the tran the proper transdimensional being making insane stuff happen at the end ending. And instead, it was an alien. And then there was something about harmonics or something. And then at the end, the alien goes away, and that was the end. And that was the final ending. However, I think there's a possibility that it wouldn't matter which version you saw 
as a child, it would still creep you out. Because even in the most bad variety... Sorry, Justin? I'm just going to say, I think Bette Davis is a major factor in creepiness. Yes. <laughs> I think, um, you know. Well, I think the other thing is that if you see the full-on version, at least you get everything. You get all yeah, of the information. Yeah, interesting to track that down. Whereas, well, it, when you see it, the toned-down version, I could even identify, they're not really talking about, hot, you know, Ring of Ring of Roses. And this isn't really, you know, you can see that they've kind of papered over something. And in a way, that's more scary because you're not even allowed to see what it is you're supposed to be scared of because well, they get it from you. Ring of Ring of Roses is a bit of a sinister fairy tale with a, with a prob- oh, yeah. probably a, a bogus history about it being about the plague. So it, there is a sinister overtones to it. But it, it's strange that there's, there's this period of time where Disney are really trying to make not kids' kids' movies. They're Disney, trying to, Disney um, have always, and they still do really, uh, they've always tried to um, tap into the teenage markets. Um, and largely this has been incredibly unsuccessful. It's only recently that they worked out, you know what, we'll just buy Marvel and we'll get it and we'll just let them do it. But up until that point, They've always, periodically, someone has gone, you know what, we need to do a film for this age. And generally, they've always flopped. So, you know, Disney goes through kind of uh, peaks and troughs. And in the late 70s, they were kind of in a terrible place. I mean, that you had things like The Black Cauldron, was the, uh, um, that's kind of early 80s, isn't it? And that uh, basically trying, and, and, and the live-action films, trying to appeal to stuff. And they don't really, you know, then, they didn't really get it. So they were always kind of making mistakes and uh, not really understanding the target audience properly. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, it, it, it's um, it's definitely a bizarre little movie. I mean, when you look at the list of movies that come out, you see some things that are kind of. I mean, you know, when you've got that it coming out in the same year as something like Any Which Way You Can, which is yeah. a very clear. Oh, the seventies aren't over. Come on, people, <laughs> 70s are still here. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got things like The Shining and, and what have you uh, doing something new. And The Watcher in the Woods is just, well, in the woods, doing its own thing. It's like, hello, I'm over here. You know, it, it, it's really strange, Aeroplane. I've always thought of Aeroplane as a 70s movie. Just and it's it's 1980s and it's, it's it weirds me out to learn that it was it was 1980 because at the well, beginning when they're all pulling up in their cabs from the airport and, and the, the vehicles and the look and the clothes it kind of shouts 70s but well of course it does it, 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 it wasn't 1970s plus as we've said before you know people didn't kind of wake up on the morning of you know January 1st yeah. of 1980 um, with you know uh, shoulder pads and you know giant mobile phones and everything else. You know. <laughs> Um, and, and immediately burning their afros. You know, there was obviously a transition period. Yes. Um, I mean, 1980 was, you know, was a 1970s plus one year. That film would have been made in the 1970s, and it was released in 1980. So, you know... Um, well, the other thing, of course, is that... I mean, I think the, the Kentucky Fried Theatre, who were making Airplane, yeah. did... They were like, well, we're, we're, you know, this is a spoof of disaster movies. Yeah. And as we discussed in a past podcast, The Big Bus, which was yeah. also a big budget yeah. spoof of disaster movies, came out in the mid-70s. So if you were spoofing well, it in the mid-70s, the, the big disaster movies all came out in the early 70s. Yeah, so when yeah. Airplane was made, they were like, well, in order to make it look properly like a, you know, a, a disaster movie, we can't have the very latest things. We have to make everyone look 
like they did in and, 1972. Uh, didn't they actually buy the properties of an actual disaster movie? That's it's based on, isn't it? That's what, as far as I understand, airplane. They it is based on an actual. It's what, based on an, like uh, airport or something, or one. No, of, I, mean, I know it's made on. I know it's based on, but they bought the rights, as I understand it, um, on a on a property of a disaster movie, ah. and then basically turned it into a spoof. So it's actually. Uh, that's as far as I understand it. I might be coming wrong there, but that's, I, I remember that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, that is a product of kind of early '70s stuff, and it you, it does it does feel like that. Um, and I, I mean, it's hard to say, but I mean, you know, Airplane I think was definitely a benchmark. People did go wild for that movie. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to say in retrospect. Oh well, that's you know. Is this where spoof started to go right, or the very seed of the germination of the thing that it's would eventually bring us kind of date pinnacle. movie? Sorry, it is it is kind of the pinnacle, isn't it? Really, I mean, you got this and the Naked Gun movie a little later on. I think, and, that, and that's kind of that's kind of it. I think that Naked well, well, Gun well, is top secret as a, as, a, as a guilty pleasure. Hmm. I think that it was a shift because you could say Airplane is a spoof movie, but really it's just like a gag movie. I mean, it's just relentless visual puns, one after the other, and verbal puns, one after the other. It's the uh, spoof kind of became, you know, something different. It became, it, it did degenerate, you know, to the point where people were just aping films and just, you know, um, introducing, you know, kind of crass humour to it. Wow. Yeah, uh, with, a um, scary, with a scary movie franchise we have. Yeah, easy. It's, it's easy targets. You just, you just basically remake a film and just replace things with a bit of nudity, a bit of, you know, bark gags and that kind of stuff. Um, it's, you know, whereas, you know, something like Airplane, it's it's not really sending up disaster movies in the same way. It's just a vehicle for it to uh, have lots of jokes. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I, when I was looking at the big bus, one of the things that struck me about that is that it had a strand which was very airplane-esque, and you yeah. can see it in that kind of spoof, where they would have a visual gag or, you know, some ridiculous thing would happen. But then it had this other strand where the actors would merely take their dialogue, and the dialogue was slightly heightened, and they would push it even further until it was this ridiculous melodrama. So you would have these scenes in which you weren't didn't have any visual gags, but the people were just acting in a ridiculous way, and that's the bit that's kind of gone because yeah. now there isn't time. There were well, people can't act in any way because all they are is standing in this big machine, which is you know jack in the boxes and you know. Uh, custard pies and all this stuff flying across the screen and then hey remember this is like that bit in Pirates of the Caribbean and now we're going to segue bizarrely into something about Transformers cleverness of it. You know, you've, you've, less the, you've lost you know, the clever writing of it uh, unfortunately yes and, and Leslie Nielsen playing it straight absolutely straight yeah. <laughs> good, luck, good luck everyone we're counting on you <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so um, and I think I think that sort of we've we've kind of successfully uh, gone through all of 1980 without ever actually really looking at either Empire Strikes Back. Popeye, we haven't talked about Popeye. You know the, the Popeye of yes. adaptations. Popeye, uh, well. Uh, I, I'm, the thing is, as much as I'd love to discuss Popeye, I think I've seen half of it once. Um, I know where it was filmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it's a it. Film, it's an odd film because uh, you know when you think of uh, Popeye, I mean, what is what do you think of Popeye when you think of the cartoon? 
What is it in essence that Popeye does? Well, he eats spinach he and eats spinach up. and then has a fight. Now, watch the film and you wait. You wait yes. for the entire film and then at the very end he eats his spinach. And that's that's why it fails. <laughs> it's almost an origin story because he hates his spinach, doesn't he? Sorry, Ian. Well, one thing I will note before we do move on to finally discuss Empire Strikes Back and, and you know, uh, just round out the podcast is that I didn't re- ever realise that Popeye came out in the same year as The Shining. If you wanted to see Shelley Duval in two more contrasting lights, <laughs> I can't think what they might be. Well, I'll just add one very last quick point to Popeye. It was it was for a long time famously the only film where Robin Williams was was forced to keep the script and not to improvise, and it kind of gave a, a conceived wisdom that Robin Williams is at his best when he's let flop, when he just let him fly and do his thing. I, I don't think that would be the opinion these days. No, uh, in, what... in fact, later on, the, the the later on Robin Williams performances of note, uh, um, after a long period in which he was just allowed to go mental are things like one-hour photo, no improvisation there. In fact, he's being a creepy murderer. In fact, the other film where he's good, where he's supposedly good, I'm not a big fan myself, is uh, Insomnia with Al Pacino, where, again, he's a creepy serious has, murderer. No, he has, not just later, I mean, he did dip into... Uh, he has done serious stuff through his career, he kind of, you know, but you just tend to remember the kind of craziest stuff, yes. obviously. Um mm. But, um, but it was like one of those things uh, they, yeah, they, 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 they muzzled Robin that, Williams and that's why Popeye sucked. Was 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 a uh, was a huge piece of conceit wisdom. Popeye could have been good. I mean, Robin Williams was right for that part. That was believable. It's just it's not a very good film. You know, no. it, it just doesn't have the elements in it that make Popeye what he is. So I think if it was done today, I don't think they were ever going to do one. But if it was done today, I think you know it would be far more cartoony, lots more you know. Lots more kind of him him eating spinach and stuff like that. And, you know, I think people would have a better grasp of it. But um, yeah, it, it fails on that really. I suppose. I, I guess. I guess once more we've tossed that into the pile of film properties where the director didn't really understand yeah. what it was they were making. Not at all. No, not at all. So yeah. Uh, strange. Um, so, so on to something where uh, the the director most certainly did seem to understand what they were making. The Empire Strikes Back. Why are we avoiding talking about this movie? Well, you know, because uh, I'm a Star Wars fanboy, I, and much like, it's like, there's certain things in my life I, I, I'm huge about, and I try and bottle them up, because I appreciate the fact that I'm not normal, and I'm verging <laughs> on being misanthropic, uh, and, and socially awkward, uh, to, to the amount, I, I love these things, I, I live in fear of ever meeting Matt Smith. For the insane and, and frankly, disturbing amount of time I spend thinking about a character he plays. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of why I'm shy. Why I'm shy about discussing Empire Strikes Back because well, I don't, yeah, but also, unlike I can just gush if you want me to. Um, <laughs> I mean, and I can also go into the familiar tropes of you know it's good to the extent to which George Lucas is is not necessarily involved in the story or directing or characterization of the movie. <laughs> Well, that's probably yeah. why, you know, it's it's the better of, <laughs> of all of them, really. Yes. Um, he just provided the story and produced it, and he got in his, his, his friend to direct it, and his friend was more well-known for sort of family drama stuff, and he wanted him there to bring the performances out of the actor and add some small personal touches to it, yeah. and pretty much he did his job. Most of the humorous, moment, humorous moments in Empire Strikes Back are down to the director. Um, you know, Hansel goes into the Falcons, switches yeah. it on, 
ill cuts out, he thumps the wall, it comes back on again, and that's like that's down to him. That was his little flourish, and you know, love that as a kid. Yeah. And, and also, yes, and it's... Did, but uh, here's a question that I hadn't really thought of. George Lucas wrote the story to Empire Strikes Back, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit of a weird. If you think about it, because a lot of people go into the fact that that the story of of Empire Strikes Back is kind of you know quite murky and 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 uh, downbeat. Well, I, think, I think I think the truth of the matter is that he'd just gone through a rather messy divorce, and so therefore had a more pessimistic story. It's the sort of Temple of Doom effect, if you like. Yeah. Just had a messy divorce. Here's here's your slightly more miserable film. Um, uh, I mean, he didn't. Cons- yeah, he did consult a I mean, psychologist about the ending of the film because it was so bleak. Uh, Luke gets maimed, and then Vader tells him his father. Yeah, he's, quite horrific. He's, not, he's not just making a sequel because otherwise that would be a bit weird just to end a film. You know, he's like that. That would be pretty bleak if you just kind of didn't know whether you were going to make another one or not. I mean, he's you know he's got this arc in mind. And so yeah. this is how he's choosing the beats, and you know, in this one he wants it to be low, and then rising to crescendo. Well, I don't think it was. I don't think it was deliberate, but um, that sort of sets the templates for a lot of uh, movie franchises going forward for a very long time until very recently, where you make the first film kind of self-contained because you know you didn't know if you were going to make a second one. But then, when you made the second one, you were often pretty sure you were going to make a third one anyway, so you yeah. would set up the third movie in the second movie. So and the it, second movie is a lot, a lot darker. I mean, the uh, Back to the Future, uh, Matrix trilogy. Yeah. I'd say the Matrix trilogy ends on a very kind of diffused note um, uh, in, in the second movie. Uh, yeah. And Back to the Future, is, it's a pretty grim second movie where Marty has a pretty miserable time throughout. Yes, so I mean, you know, it's, it's, and I think it's weird because you know you wonder whether that is, um, in fact, a function of, um, you wonder whether it's a function of, of of writing, but actually, or you know, whether they actually thought about it like that. But in fact, it's a function of business. It's like, well, if the first one doesn't do very well, we're never going to make another one, so don't, you know, try and big it up. But then. <laughs> like they make the second one, and it's like, well, we're going to make a third one. So they yeah. they feel free to do that, and it's like, well, only now are people starting. And and you know, this is partially, I think, a Harry Potter effect. Um, Harry Potter, and uh, you know, one of the few good things that Twilight has brought to the world is the fact that people go, hey, why don't we just and Lord of the Rings? Why don't we just commit to doing the whole lot? And that yeah. way, the first movie doesn't have to be. You know, all so well, by the end. They dropped the ball with the amber spyglass, didn't they? Um, well, yeah, I mean, well, did, what was it? Um, the Golden Compass was the first one. So, yes, nor, or Northern yes. Lights. Sorry, terribly sorry. Yes, gold, Golden Compass. Well, the, well um, there they kind of anticipated they were going to, and then they just didn't. Well, yeah, I mean, well, that is, that, when you become positive, if you just assume that all these franchises just automatically kick off and will be fine then yes, you can probably get a bit lazy. Um, I, you know, so, so yes, there is a risk of that, doing a great big film yes. and then and actually... The last Airbender it. trilogy. Yeah, that, that never materialised. Uh, um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they, I, mean, I mean, I think the worst thing about that is, and I think this is possibly why they um, never sort of committed to this sort of uh, 
model in the first place is that if you do make a first movie and it did happen from time to time even in the 1980s but if you do make a first movie that's supposed to be part of a franchise and then the franchise never happens it not only means that the film was not a success but it also means that historically there will be no resale value to the film because people are like well it's you know, you know what? It's it's never stopped video game makers ending of ending their games on a cliffhanger, has it? Ah, uh, but that's because a video game is centered around you know the game part of the video game. So you know, it, it's not centered around the, the the sort of the story. The story is like an added bonus. So that, I think that's possibly why that is. Um, so yes, there we go. That was 1980, and wow, it was a bit of a. I feel like we've kind of sort of. Ricocheted off the walls of 1980. Wasn't it? We're laying the ground down for what is to come. So that's just you know a little bit of uh, foreshadowing, I think. Um, Because now uh, 1980 plus one next time. Yes, 1980 plus one. We could really (laughs) annoy people by just doing. And next week, 1980 plus two. 1980 plus two. 1980 plus eleven. So into the 90s now. But we're of course not going to do that um but if people really want to ensure we're not going to do it by telling us uh, in person not to do it where might they go to be able to deliver such a, a, a fevered entreaty here well one place might be our facebook page which is our community hub you can find it of course on facebook and i got that's uh, you can type in the search for revenge is kid you'll probably find it but it's 80s as in 80 so that's revenge of the 80s kids s is plural uh, please go there please like subscribe please comment we post up a podcast we post up post up interesting links and fall into occasional discussions about things um you might also want to go to our podomatic.page where our podcasts are housed. Uh, you can find that at uh, 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters. So that's E I G H T I E S kids.podomatic.com. P- please go there. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast using the podcast aggregate of your choice. Just let me download us. Uh, leave comments there as well if you wish. We do read everything. And uh, yes, Leo, you can also be found. Where else? Well, I was just going to say, on the subject of Podomatic and people sending us comments, it was a, f- a while back now that somebody sent us a comment on one of the shows via my blog, which you can find at leostamford.blogspot.com, uh, giving suggestions about where we might move our shows to archive them in the longer term so the Podomatic still has room to host new podcasts. Now, we are. I, I'm going to attempt to do this and to change links and direct links and stuff. So if you have any direct links saved to any of the other podcasts, you might want to watch because eventually they'll disappear from Podomatic and move somewhere else, which is to be confirmed shortly. Uh, but yes, you can also comment to me at leostalefordblogspot.com, which is a lot of podcasts at the moment. Also this year, I'm doing a, a fairy tale uh, every Sunday on bridgetowntales.blogspot.com and uh, yeah that's turned into a bit of a series who, who, who illustrates your, your fairy tales when he's here? not snowed under with massive <laughs> amounts of other work uh, Justin attempts to put uh, like, pen to tablet to uh, provide illustrations for that don't you Justin? indeed I do yes I do and uh, last, time, uh, last time we were uh, in conversation about this very topic uh, Justin you wanted to hide from the world and didn't want to tell him <laughs> where your website was because you were too busy I'm taking this is still the case. Uh, well, no, I mean, you can find me on Demon Art. Um, my actual website needs updating, so I don't like to broadcast that. But you can find me on Demon Art under uh, Justin Wyatt, or one word, capital letters, probably. 
Um, yes, please, so, please bombard him with requests. No, don't um, do that. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm still quite busy, so yes, I don't. <laughs> but uh, that's that's a good thing. So yes, we're, we're going to celebrate thing. that. Um, so yes, so that's where you can find us in in the in between. Um, and uh, please do. Uh, the Facebook page actually hasn't had many likes recently, and I feel that because I know that there are people listening to this show. I know this for a fact because they comment to us and tell us you know, where to archive shows and stuff like that. Uh, maybe our demographic, being 80s kids, are the kind of people who are like, well, I don't have to show my support for something by liking it on Facebook. And indeed you don't, audience. But it would be nice. We'd be like, we're here. We're 80s. Get used to it. We're back. <laughs> so We yes. don't want to use emotional blackmail, but we will. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, now that maybe maybe we will have a sudden influx now that we've actually reached the 1980s. So we've started strong, and next time we're going to keep on keeping on with 1981, which I'm looking forward to immensely. Uh, how about you, Ian? Overjoyed, tingling even. And Justin? <laughs> oh, completely. Yes, I'm already kind of uh, looking up some lists of stuff that's coming. Well, very, so, very good. And, and so anticipation at a high. Uh, we will see you next time. Bye bye. Farewell. Goodbye.